Hey guys, this is Emma from The Horse Cure, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. So today I got the chance to talk with Kip Fladland of La Riata Ranch in Griswold, Iowa. Kip talks about how he became a horseman, his time with Buck Branneman, and his training philosophies. Here we go with Kip. Let's get started. So tell me how you got into horses. Well, I, my family, I wouldn't say I grew up on a ranch by any means, but my family has had horses ever since I can remember when I was a small kid there in Montana. And my grandparents on my mother's side had a, had a definitely a cow operation and, and ranch there in central Montana in the Little Bell Mountains. And we'd go up there in the spring and the fall and gather cattle and brand cattle in the spring and that kind of thing. And I wanted to be a cowboy my whole life. So it's you know just kind of part of my growing up deal. That's kind of where I got into it, I guess. You know, my family's always had horses. That um, sounds like the life most of us would love growing up on a big beautiful ranch and riding and of course there's a lot more to it than just hopping on your pony and riding around but it just sounds lovely yeah although you know when i was a kid that's pretty much what we did quite honestly because i didn't know anything about you know the ray hunt tom Dorn style of horsemanship or anything until i was probably 17 or so in high school and then i got around some guys that had actually had gone to college with buck Branneman and had been to quite, quite a few of ray and tom's clinics over the years and they kind of got me interested in being better with horses i guess you'd say because like I say, I certainly didn't grow up with this style of horsemanship by any means, but I got onto it fairly early. But I didn't meet Buck Branneman until 1990, 91, I guess, the fall of 91. When I was a college kid, I worked on a dude outfit there in Montana. And he was coming to that guest ranch in the fall and doing horsemanship clinics for the guests. And I had heard about him, and the head wrangler at that place actually went to college with Buck as well, and were mutual friends. And, and uh, that fellow was always trying to push this style of horsemanship onto us and that kind of thing. And, you know, we were dumb and young and all that kind of stuff. And you know, we don't have time for that kind of stuff. We're just pushing dudes around. You know, that's not a big deal. Well, when the first day that Buck showed up, he jumped out of a brand new Dodge Dooley pickup of <laughs> bleached stonewash wranglers and a pink uh, Ralph Polo shirt on. With a silver belly hat and red lace-up ropers, and I was like, "This guy is not a cowboy, right? I mean, he's a town guy that's dressed up like one." You know. <laughs> but the next day, when the clinic started there at that guest ranch, Buck caught one of his horses out of the arena because that's where we kept his horses in great big outdoor arena. And he jumped on that horse bareback with a halter to ride it up to his trailer, which was about a hundred yards away. And he did stuff with that horse that I didn't even know you could do with a horse. Like what so are I you was thinking? standing at the horse barn watching him just ride the horse up to the trailer. And he just picked up on the lead rope straight up, and that horse put his chin down and in and got what we would refer to as bridled up, you know, and did a leg yield this way and did a leg yield that way, <laughs> throw the lead rope over his head, turned him around over his hocks like he was spinning a reining horse, and he was going up a rocky slope. I mean, it was, certainly wasn't a hill, but it was dang sure a slope, and it was rocky and wet grass, and that horse never missed a beat, huh. and I was in awe. You know, I'd been riding horses my whole life and had started some colts under saddle and gathered cattle in the mountains by myself and branded calves and hunted off horses, all kind of stuff. And like I say, he did things with that horse in that hundred yards in a lead rope and a halter bareback that I didn't even know you could do with a horse. <laughs> so I was pretty intrigued by that. Well, sure, yeah. So during that time at that very particular place, the, the Wranglers had the opportunity to have supper with Buck and the fellow that was working for him at the time. And I strategically placed myself at the table right between this fellow that worked for Buck and Buck himself. <laughs> And I asked Greg, the guy that was working for him, how I could get his job. And he said, well, you'd have to talk to Buck about that, you know. <laughs> so the clinic, which was a four-day affair there at that guest ranch at that time, I asked Buck how I could go to work for him. And he said, well, I think you're going to college right now, aren't you? And I said, 
Yeah, and that was the last thing I wanted to hear because when I went to college, I had no intentions of going, okay. but that was ended up happening. So, <laughs> said, well, I never finished college, and that's something you should probably do. So, when you get finished with college, call me. And I was like, oh, that really sucks. That's never- <laughs> well, lo and behold, when I graduated from college, I sent Buck Branham a formal letter saying I was done with school and I was holding up my end of the bargain. and and could I go to work for him? <laughs> so the spring of 1996, I went to work for Buck for the first time and traveled with him for about three and a half months and kind of got onto this. During the time before that, however, the guest ranch kind of took a liking to me or something, I guess, because mm-hmm. towards the end of my summer career at that operation, they'd give me a checkbook and a ranch pickup and trailer and two or three ranch horses and nice. send me off on third mornings to go to a Buck Random and Clinic if it was in 500 miles driving distance. Wow. And I'd spend a weekend riding ranch horses at Branham Clinics. So I, I did actually get to know Buck over the years because I rode in quite a few of his clinics. And whenever he was in the country, we'd go watch and that kind of thing. So that really helped out. But I went to work for him the first time in the spring of 96 and spent three and a half months with him and figured out that I didn't know a damn thing about horses <laughs> um, and that I needed to learn an awful lot more. But that particular time frame was only about a three and a half month stint. And then the other fellow that had worked for him in the past came back to work for him. So well, I now, went back to work on a Rappapanna. Kip, what did he so, see in you? Because he probably just didn't let any old guy come and work with him. Well, I suppose, you know, I guess you'd have to ask him that, I, mm-hmm. I suppose. But just over the years and getting to know him and that kind of thing, I, you know, he recognized the fact that if nothing else, I had the interest and I had the try. I would have to say that I have developed the talent and I'm still developing the talent because I'm not a really super good hand by any stretch, but my standards are pretty high because I look at Tom Dorrance or Ray Hunter, Buck Brownman, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of my standard and I'm nowhere near that, but I'm working at it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is I had to stay in power, you know, I mean, I, it didn't matter if he said we're leaving at three o'clock in the morning or if we're going to drive till three o'clock in the morning, you know, I was there and I wanted to do it because mm-hmm. I knew what was on the other side of that. And that was learning from him and getting better with horses. Do so you, that was, I hope oh, that's why, that's why he took me on, I guess. Okay. <laughs> do you still so. go to clinics? You oh, give, yeah. You give yeah, your own I, clinics now, but do you still go? Yeah, I'm definitely still a student. You know, I sponsor a Buck Brownman clinic here in Omaha every other year. Okay. And I'm, without a doubt, I'm the first one in the arena and the last <laughs> one to leave when he's there because he makes me better every time I see him. Although I wouldn't like it because I enjoy being around people and the horses and that kind of thing. But I would love to go to a Buck Brandman clinic when nobody knew who I was mm-hmm. and, cons- and not speak to anyone and not have anyone speak to me so I could just watch him ride his horses. Because <laughs> that would be beneficial for me. You know, now a lot of folks maybe aren't that far along as far as I being trained to watch what he's doing and watch what the horse is doing and that kind of thing. But I'm at a point now where where that would be beneficial for me without a doubt. And I'd gladly pay the money to go and not even ride a horse and watch Buck ride. But you'd have to go in costume or something. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) I probably would, yeah. Although nowadays, he's doing a few clinics nowadays in locations that that he didn't do when I was working and traveling with him. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those folks know who I am. So I might have a better chance at those locations. But (laughs) for the most part, almost anywhere around the country, somebody's going to know me. Sure. So they'd want to visit, which is fine. 
I, I'm into that because I made an awful lot of very dear friends while I was working and traveling with Buck. But my ultimate would be able to go to a clinic and spend three days sitting on the fence and never say a word and watch him ride. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe if so, you're overseas or something sometime, does he do things out of the well, United States? I, as a matter of fact, I, my wife and I both are going to Australia this January to participate in the Legacy of Legends. Oh, cool. Which is a scholarship program that Buck Brandman and Carolyn Hunt have kind of developed to preserve the style of horsemanship. And they do a, a legacy event every other year in Australia. And Carolyn asked Missy and myself to go and demonstrate in that deal. And then I'm actually staying for an additional two weeks to go to two different clinics with Buck. So oh, wow. that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. So I haven't been there in 1996. So what an you know, opportunity. Was 22 years ago. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yes. Okay. Now you yeah. just said his style of horsemanship and that style of horsemanship, which kind of flows into my next question. What is your training philosophy? I know that's a really broad question, but what makes Kip Kip? Why do people want their horses with you? You know, I guess I couldn't probably really say specifically. However, my guess would be is that this style of horsemanship has kind of caught on like wildfire within the last 10 or 12 years. And getting a horse in training with Buck Brandeman is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's only a limited number of guys out there that start colts in this fashion or ride horses in this fashion that are directly tied to Buck or back to Ray Hunt. There's a lot of guys that are doing it, and they they all do a, probably a pretty good job. But I guess the reason people would want to send their horses to me is because, quite honestly, here in the Midwest, I'm the only guy that starts a horse under saddle, a young horse. And then on the other side of it is because they know that this style of horsemanship works and it fits any riding discipline that you could imagine, whether you're going to be an endurance trail rider, a polo player, a jumping horse rider, a dressage rider, a calf roper, team roper, cutting horse rider, or a weekend trail rider. This style of horsemanship fits because it's about the horse. It's not about what the horse can do physically. It's doing something with the horse to keep it in a good frame of mind and to keep it in a willing frame of mind so that you can maneuver it at your will, but having the horse do that willingly. Yes, that would be kind of the philosophy is being able to get a horse to do whatever I might want it to do, but be able to do that with the horse in a frame of mind that he is willing to do it. Have you had horses that you have said, okay, I, I want you to willingly do this, so we're going to work together for this goal that I have, and they don't, that's that's just, that's not going that way for them. Have you had horses that you've switched your goal with, like maybe we were going to do dressage, but now we're going to work with cattle or, or some sort of thing to where, I mean, every horse is different Well, or, or are they pretty? Yeah. You know, quite honestly, because of the tie to my wife, 60 to 65% of my clientele is riding English sport horses. Mm -hmm. And of that six percent, 90% of those are wannabe dressage horses. Okay. But because of their breed, the size, the age, the sex, anything like that, I ride every one of them as if I was going to own them the rest of their life and they were going to be a ranch horse for me. Okay. So I take them outside. I work a cow on them. I drag a log. I ride, you know, swing a rope on them. I, I ride around with a flag, ride around the tarp. Certain times of the year, in the spring and the fall particularly, I take them to ranches and work cattle and brand calves and all that kind of stuff. So as far as what the end destination for the horse's discipline is going to be, it's totally immaterial to me because I ride every one of them as if they were my horse and what I would prefer them to do because I like to work cows and rope and that kind of 
of thing. That's kind of how I train them. Now, if I know the horse is maybe, quote-unquote, destined to be a jumping horse or, quote-unquote, destined to be a dressage horse, there's some things I'm going to do in my riding just over the course of the time that I have the horse. You know, I might take the horse over some cavalettis or certainly over some, some rails or something like that or get the horse maneuvering laterally quite well if it's going to be a dressage horse or something like that. But I don't particularly change how I ride any of them depending upon what the, quote-unquote, destination discipline is going to be. So what I does... ride all of them just it's the same. Okay. What does that do for their frame of mind? You know, just kind of putting them through the paces. This is what it's like being a horse when you're at my ranch. How does that, how does that translate to their, their life when they go back home? Well, I'd like to think that they're in a position to where they can feel like they're they can let down, we call it, which means mentally letting go of baggage, for lack of a better description, quite frankly. Quite honestly, when people come to pick up horses that I've ridden for them, you know, oftentimes they don't want to ask too much of the horse because they don't want to, quote unquote, wreck what I've done mm-hmm. in a way of, quote unquote, training the horse. But I tell them all the time to do something, even if it's wrong is way better than to do nothing at all, which means if you want the horse to go and you roll up on your seat and open your legs and he doesn't go, you indeed need to kick it. Now, that degree of kicking, if you were going to put a measure on it, you know, my one degree might be your five degree. Mm-hmm. simply because of physical leg strength or something like that. But if you don't kick it, the horse is going to go, well, obviously she didn't really want me to go, so eh, I'm not going to go. Right. You know, if you were in a frame of mind thinking, dang, I don't want to kick it because I know Kip didn't kick it when he was riding it, and I don't want to wreck it. <laughs> well, you're going to wreck it if you don't kick it. Because believe me, if I was riding the horse and I rolled up on my seat and opened my legs and he didn't go, I'd kick him hard enough that his mother would feel it. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. but by the same token, the very next time that I asked it to go, I wouldn't have to kick it. Right. Because the horse would think to himself, hey, note to self, this guy pretty much means what he says. Right. And I don't want him to follow through. So I think I'm just going to go. Yeah. Because it's a net gain for me. <laughs> and you know, then, you know, you don't have that problem. But when the horses go home, I try to I try to maybe push the envelope as far as where the horse's education is a little bit further than literally where it is. That way, when the horse does go home and the rider, whatever their ability or skill level might be, if they get in a place where it's a little bit dicey, either for them and or for the horse, if the horse could talk, he might look back over his shoulder and say, hey, I got this. Yeah. Me and you, we're going to go through together. So I oftentimes tell people, I probably ask more of the horse than what you're going to ask because they call me a quote unquote trainer. <laughs> I feel like that's my job. Do you ask your owners to come and ride with you a couple of times before you send your horse home or is that not something that usually happens? Well, quite honestly, it, it doesn't usually happen. However, I do have a pretty much open door policy. As long as you call and make arrangements that you want to come and watch your horse go, mm-hmm. you can come and watch me ride your horse or any other horses that I ride that day for no additional charge. Ask as many questions as you like, whatever you want to do. When I ride a horse for a customer or a client, I tell them when it comes time to take the horse home, you should expect to spend three or four hours with me because I'm going to ride the horse and then I'm going to have you ride the horse under my quote-unquote tutelage. Quite honestly, most of the folks that I ride horses for, I've rode horses for before, so they kind of know the deal. Okay. New client, you know, I encourage them to come watch me ride as much as they're able. But quite honestly, most folks are, you know, got a real job. They got a life, got kids, got family, that kind of thing. They don't have a lot of time. And most of the horses that I ride come from out of state. 
So that makes it difficult to some extent, you know, just the literal miles apart. Sure. But I definitely encourage people to come watch, you know, or like I say, when they come to pick the horse up to take it home, they should indeed expect to spend several hours with me. What a bonus, though. You know, you get your, your trained up horse and then you get a clinic's worth of a lesson. I'd like to think that anyway. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Whether that's how it ends up or not, I'm not sure, but that's kind of how I think. So Kip, on your website, it says you're confident with problem horses. Tell me about that. Why people see you as a problem solver and a fixer? I guess that's a good question. The reason I have that on there is because a lot of people that are less skilled, and I don't mean in person to me by any means, but, you know, people that are just greener riders or something like that, or, you know, quite honestly, you know, a middle-aged lady that's raised up her kids and she rode horses as a child, and now her kids are growing to where they can take care of themselves. She has a little bit of expendable income, and she wants to get back into riding horses because she envisioned it being a lifelong achievement when she was a kid, but she has some trepidation, but she bought a six-year-old horse that was really nice and gentle when she went to try it and took it home and let it sit for two weeks. And now it goes faster than what she can stand to ride it. And when she asks it to canter, it kicks out behind and then it goes too fast and then she gets scared and then the horse gets scared and then fuck her off. That's kind of the problem horse that I would be more described. The horse is not the problem. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's the skill level of the rider. Sure. Now, granted, there's without a doubt some problem horses out there. The biggest reason that I probably end up with them or someone like myself ends up with them is because the person that's the quote unquote trainer in that person's discipline of riding is not interested in handling or working with a problem horse like that because it takes physically too long on a clock face. Okay. And they don't make enough money off that horse. Yeah. So they have to send someone like me who rides, quote unquote, problem horses and does my thing. I think that's kind of why I end up with them. But, you know, I tell people I ride horses for the public and start colts for a living. But quite honestly, I ride problem horses and I fix people problems. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather ride an unstarted two-year-old that wanted to buck me off as opposed to riding one that's spoiled and may or may not buck and may or may not run off or may or may not kick you, you know, may or may not bite you or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'd much rather ride a bucking horse than one of those. And now tell me why that is. That that makes me nervous. Oh, a bucking horse. No, thank you. Or a two-year-old. Oh, they just, they could be great or they could be crazy. Because I know what to do with those. The ones that are unpredictable, mm-hmm. those are the ones I trouble with. <laughs> Because things could be going along well, even by my standards, and then all of a sudden something flips in the horse and he's on the fight or he's on the honk or whatever it might be. Or one that's sure enough a bronco, you got to be on your toes all the time. <laughs> but by the token, I can kind of feel that coming on and, and be able to say, hey, why don't you go over here and do this? Or why don't you slow down? Why don't you speed up? Why don't you stop? Why don't you turn? You know, whatever it might be. With a problem horse, it's not always that way. Is there... He might be 15 strides into a canner and he decide to throw his head between his legs and, and, you know, hit the rockets. The problem horses are a lot more volatile, quite honestly, than a young, uneducated horse. Okay. That surprises me a little bit. Of course, I have way less experience in any of this kind of stuff, but that does kind of surprise me, though. But it makes sense. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and that's only because of the problems that people have created. They've been tolerant of the misbehaving kind of a horse up to a point, and then when that misbehaving gets to be too much for them, they think they're going to strong arm the horse or muscle the horse into submission. And the horse is like, look, you've been riding me for six months and feeding me altium, (laughs) <laughs> and keeping me in a stall and and I am physically fit 
and I have a lot of stamina, and quite honestly, I'm a lot bigger than you. <laughs> You're not going to muscle me into anything. I'm going to buck you off. <laughs> right. Because I know if I buck you off, you're going to put me away for the day. And that's all I want to be anyway. Yeah. Is left alone. That's kind of what I face a lot of the times. Like I say, I tell people I start colts for a living, but I ride more problem horses than I do anything else. <laughs> all right. But, well, so now shifting over to a KIPP clinic. So you do some clinics. What does it look like? What should people expect when they sign up for that? Quite honestly, in this day and age, and I've, I told a friend of mine this just the other day, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. And although I'm not a quote unquote nationally recognized clinician by any means, I got a reputation and mm-hmm. have, have some following and that kind of thing. But I don't charge near as much money as other guys do, maybe. But if you're going to spend the money with me, I would hope in this day and age, you're capable of doing a little bit of research and knowing what to <laughs> expect when you show up. Sure. But by the same token, because of who I learned from and where I come from, that kind of thing, my clinics are instructionally on the same lines as as Bucks or Rays were years ago. You know, it's a group setting. We're going to start out with pretty basic stuff. And then as the clinic progresses, either by the day or certainly by the weekend, we're going to get to some more advanced maneuvers with the horse. I'm going to be challenging people to be able to do more and more with their horses and keep them horses calm, level-headed without getting excited and that kind of thing. And sometimes it's, you know, it can be a little bit chaotic that first day because the horses maybe have never been exposed to this kind of riding or this style of riding, or maybe even the people have never been exposed to this style of riding. They've maybe heard of Buck Brannaman. They know that I worked for him, so they must, they think, well, he's probably got a little bit of that in him, so I'll just go to him quite a bit cheaper. And he's actually here, and Buck only comes here, you know, every other year or every six months or whatever it is. I guess people should expect that it's going to be run quite a bit like a Buck Brandon clinic. But quite honestly, I had a gal tell me about two weeks ago in Colorado that he went to a Buck Brandon clinic four or five years ago and, and learned a lot, had a great time, but there was just too many people in the class for whole. Okay. And I was like, well, that'll happen. And at this clinic, she said, you teach a lot like he does, and I really enjoy that. But this clinic was a lot smaller, and I got a lot more out of it. Sure. So I'm not sure if that was a compliment or not, but I took it as the fact that she fully understood what I was trying to convey to her as far as information goes. You know, to me, it felt like a compliment. Yeah. That's kind of how I took it anyway. <laughs> I, yeah, no, so. I, I think that makes sense. And sometimes it is nice to have, you know, hey, Kip, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I don't get it. And, you know, you're able to focus more on, you know. The individual kind of a thing. Yeah. Sure. Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. now what type of gear is appropriate? You know, you think Clinton Anderson and you always think of that big flappy rope thing or whatever he has. Is there a specific gear that you're like, okay, you need to have this because we're going to work on this? Or is it just like bring your tack, bring your horse, be ready to ride? Yeah, that's pretty much my philosophy. Quite frankly, you know, I'm not I'm not really a stickler about the gear that a person would ride with or use other than if, in my opinion, the bit, quite honestly, it ends up being the bridle, the bit, whatever it is, um, not being appropriate for this style of riding or that educated level of a horse. You know, quite honestly, a snaffle bit is going to be your best bit. And I'm talking about a ring snaffle or a D-ring, an egg butt, mm-hmm. something like that, opposed to anything with a shank on it. But it doesn't matter if you ride English, if you ride Western, if you're a cutter or a team roper or a jumping horse rider or a dressage rider, the saddle doesn't mean anything thing to me. That's totally up to you. And the horse doesn't care either, quite frankly, most mm-hmm. times. As far as maybe the groundwork goes, it's certainly advantageous in this style of horsemanship that you have a flag because you can get an awful lot done with what has become known as a horsemanship flag, which is a tapered stainless steel rod about four feet long with a nylon flag 
tied on the end of it. You know, that's certainly not a requirement, but it's definitely an aid in your tools of, of getting your horse better about things. And, you know, a halter and a, a 10 or 12 foot lead rope, a lead rope long enough that you can do something with, but not so long that you're carrying 10 or 12 feet of it coiled up in your hand all the time. So I'm not talking about a 20 foot lunge rope, mm-hmm. certainly a lunge line. That's not what I'm referring to, but you know, a lead rope that's long enough that you could maybe go the length of your horse's body and still have two or three feet left over, okay. you know, but other than that, other than maybe a flag and a long lead rope on your halter, I'm pretty indifferent to whatever gear a person uses, okay. you know, because this style of horsemanship and riding or not is conducive to anything. I mean, you you know, if a person showed up bareback in a halter and said, this is how I ride, I'd be like, well, that's cool. Let's do this. It not make any difference to me at all. You know, they might have difficulty roping and tying down a cow without a saddle. But, you know, that's not for everybody. Right. <laughs> but, so what do you hope um, for your clients after a clinic? What What's your goal there? You know, because probably you've got a bunch of people going into it with different goals. What do you hope people come out oh, of? Certainly. What do you hope people come out of it with? I'd like to think that they would go home at the end of the clinic and think, wow, I'm I'm." In exhausted and I'm physically exhausted and I'm pretty sure I've confused my horse. <laughs> However, after about a day or so or maybe even a week in some cases, the people go, oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> oh, that's how he did that. So honestly, I probably give people a lot of information and I try to give them a lot of different exercises to do with their horses. And I'm very upfront with people. Look, they're not going to get this mastered in a three-day clinic. You're not going to be able to call it done when you leave here. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to work probably the rest of your life. <laughs> Yeah. Because I've been working at it for about 25 years now, <laughs> religiously, every day, and I still don't have it. But I, I would like to think that go home and say, you know what, I actually learned something, and I think my horse got better, and I got enough tools in my toolbox now that I can at least go home and work on things. Mm-hmm. And then next time, maybe go back and ride with him again and say, hey, what about this? Or how do I do this? Or how come this is going on when I do this? Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to have people walk away with, I suppose. Do you have a lot of yeah. different types of writing levels who come, you know, some newbie riders and then some people who are very experienced or not so much? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the experience level is quite variant. In addition to the, the the number of people that maybe have been to either my clinics or Buck's clinics or both in a lot of cases okay. or someone else's clinics and they're coming to mind because I was the guy at the flavor of the week. But then there's people that have, you know, been riding horses their whole life and never been to a clinic in their life. And then there's people that got this horse two weeks ago and they rode it three times and they've rode horses four times in their life. You know? <laughs> I mean, so the variance is quite extensive and that's pretty much standard. Although I do a few clinics around the country where I have, I'm not going to say a huge following, but for me, it's a big following. And those clinics are quite fun because I can go there and you know visit with all my friends, mm-hmm. namely. In addition to the fact that we can start you know a little bit further along down the road instead of having to start at the very beginning every day or every time. Sure. But often, you know, inevitably, there's going to be at least one person in the clinic that maybe it's their first time at my clinic or maybe it's their first time at a horse clinic at all or maybe they're a new horse owner and they just don't know. So you've got to start kind of where the lowest student in the class is and, and go from there. Those students, however, that are really good, maybe far along, got a lot of experience or been to a lot of clinics, they started like that too. Mm-hmm. So they're totally cool with going along with the newbie until he kind of gets hooked onto the deal. Yeah. 
because they're far enough along in their education, they know that going back and doing the, the very basic stuff is only going to benefit them in the long run. Regardless of the level of education of your students and or the horses, everybody gets along just fine because the people that are far enough along know the benefits of the beginning stuff and the people that are really green at it are learning and they wouldn't have any idea if you didn't start at the beginning or not. So, <laughs> so Kim, yeah. I had looked you up on YouTube and, and watched a couple of videos um, and there was a... It looked like somebody recorded it off their cell phone and, and it was wonderful to watch. I really enjoyed it. Probably. Yeah. But you were oh. working with, I, <laughs> I loved it though. You know, it, it just seemed, it was so real. It was so very real. Oh, well, and, well that's cool. <laughs> right. <that> should be. <laughs> um, but I think you were riding maybe their younger horse. And of course they were pleased as punch. Sure. Um, but you were riding this horse and you said, see, I'm not riding. That's why he's not moving. Now when I'm going to be riding again, he'll get to moving. But right now I'm not riding. So he's not moving. What are you doing when you're well, not riding? You'd like to think that when I have energy in my body, that would convey to the horse consequently to put energy in his body. So you refer to having maybe a live seat or energy or inertia in your seat bones, in your pelvic area, mm -hmm. your upper thigh, the lower torso. That should convey that energy into the horse and consequently have him move forward. Because for me, when I'm sitting on my horse, if I'm in an, an active riding position, a live seat, I actually have four legs, not just two. Those legs of the horses are mine, so to speak. And I want to stop. I take the life out of my body. Consequently, that takes the life out of the horse's body so he doesn't move. Now, that's not to say that I can't move or I have to hold my breath or anything like that when I'm sitting on my horse because I should be able to swing my legs and swing my arms, reach up and rub him on his ears, reach up and rub him back on his tail head, you know, move my legs from his shoulder clear back to his flank and not have him react to that. But when I take the body posture or the body position of an active seat or a riding position, that should convey a feel physically as well as heartfelt, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, to the horse to get him to activate his feet. That's what I think about. We talk about maybe three different riding positions. You have seat position one, two, and three. Three being where you're sitting back on your pockets with your back kind of concaved and no life in your seat. Okay. But when you roll up at seat position two, you would roll forward on your pelvic bone and your seat bones would be floating and there would be some kind of life in your torso, in your pelvic area. Okay. That would cause them to go forward. If I rolled up into what we refer to as seat position one, that would mean I would almost literally lean forward over top of my saddle horn, over top of the horse's withers, mm -hmm. which would mean it's going to jump a creek. I was going to jump a log. I was going to jump a jump. I was going to jump out and stop a cow. I was going to jump my horse out to get out of the way of the county road from the car flying down the county road when I'm along a trail ride. Anything like that where I wanted my horse to, to come alive with energy really quickly, I would roll up into seat position one. So, so over time, and depending upon how clear you are with your C positions and how crisp you are at putting energy into any one of those three or taking energy out of any one of those three, that's going to dictate how soon your horse picks up on it. And by that, I mean, when I'm riding a two-year-old for the first time, I'm still thinking about that seat position. But by the same token, when I'm riding a very well-educated older horse, I'm still thinking about those seat positions. Okay. So that horse over time learns, hey, he's in seat position too, my feet need to be moving. Mm -hmm. Right, left, forward, or back, fast or slow, all depends on how fast he's moving. That's how my horse should respond. Okay. So that's kind of why I would refer to that. It's our job as a rider to give that horse direction. And if I'm not directing it anywhere, it shouldn't have anywhere to go. So consequently, it should stand there. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Yep.
I like that. I can't think of how many times I've been on a trail ride and just not been actively thinking about anything or doing anything other than just sitting my tush in that saddle. And you know, it's, it would be no wonder that my horse would be anxious or nervous because I'm not, you know, I'm not riding. He's in control or on the opposite side to be like, Oh, well, she's not in charge. I am, you know, and, um, and having exactly. to, yeah, yeah, having to work with, with a horse that I have done that with many times and, and then say, well, gee, I wonder why he's not listening to me. Well, I've kind of taught go. him to, yeah. you know. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Horses, horses are humble animals and in a herd, there is always a leader. Mm-hmm. Now that leader might be might be rotating over time because horses die or the lead horse gets taken out on a ride that day or whatever. But there is always a leader, and horses under that leader prefer that that leader be there. So consequently, when when the horses under us being a rider, they would prefer that we be a leader and direct them somewhere. But if we're not willing to do that, not able to do that, not knowing to do that, the horse is like, look, if you're not going to give me direction and support me through that, I'm going to have to defend or take care of myself. And consequently, that doesn't always involve you as a rider. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, if a person's riding a horse, they need to take the responsibility of being a leader for that horse. So, well, yeah. And depending on your horse's mindset, you know, him being a leader might be his cup of tea and he's going to take you where he wants to go or he's going to be a cowering baby and run back home because he's scared of everything or, or there something. You go. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I I have I've learned that from from you and people who you have taught that while you're riding your responsibility is to be with your horse and and be present, you know, actually be there yeah. doing things and not even just yeah, when you're riding, you. but you know, when when you're grooming, when you're out in the pasture, when you're picking feet, you know, you need to be present and aware and and all of those things. Right, exactly. Well, Kip, talk a little bit about your home. Is it La Riata? Am I saying that right? Yeah, La Riata Ranch. Yeah. Okay. And quite frankly, it's it's a misnomer because this is not a ranch by any stretch of the imagination from where I come from. Well, you yeah. Know, we live on southwest Iowa. It's not a ranch. <laughs> it's, it's not 5,000 acres in Montana. That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> so, but we came upon that name because it's Spanish. It's horse related and, you know, it, it kind of fit both the dressage world and the cowboy world, for lack of a better descriptive term. Uh, my wife and I created the business when we got married. Uh, we both ride horses for the public. She still was dressage horses professionally and I ride the horses and problem horses for the public. But we've moved here to Iowa because we just couldn't uh, afford to find a property in Montana. Mm-hmm. We were close enough to the public that we could ride horses for the public. So we moved Moved back to Iowa here in 2006. My wife grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, riding horses in Council Bluffs. And a dear friend of hers that kind of got her into the horse thing said, look, you can come to my place and have the run of it until you find a place of your own. So we were able to come to this country and, and conduct our business while we were looking for a place of our own. And we found this place just outside of Griswold, Iowa. You know, it's, it's a nice little piece of property and, and we definitely made it very useful to us as our, our kind of thing. We don't board horses for the public. We're strictly a, a training facility. Mm-hmm. We do, unfortunately, own some horses outright. <laughs> <laughs> they don't make bills, but we do own some of our own. But most of the horses that are here are all client horses. Okay. And they're in training. Are you okay in the Midwest or are you yearning for Montana still? 
you know, I've been here a long time now, and I, I traded the mountains for cornfields a long time ago. Okay. And we live in a real small, conservative community with a real nice bunch of people and that kind of thing. They're farmers instead of ranchers. Mm-hmm. And I live in a nice house. You know, I got a nice barn to ride in, all that kind of stuff. So that part of it I'm totally cool with, but I detest the humidity in this country. <laughs> the climate here is for the birds between the 1st of April and the 20th of September. And it was kind of comical when we first moved here. People said, oh, the humidity, it's going to be so bad in the winter, just like it is in the summer. Well, the first two years we lived here, Southwest Iowa had two record-breaking winters <laughs> on record. And I told the neighbors and people in town, I said, I really hope you guys never go to Montana in the winter. I said, because it's like this from the 1st of October till the 1st of June. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's winter up there. Right. <laughs> so I don't mind where I live. I make a good living and I enjoy it and that kind of thing. But I do not like the climate in this country whatsoever. <laughs> but it's where I live. So you get used to it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yep. You change clothes three or four times a day in the summertime and that's how it works. Sure. You know? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, I got my head down working, doing whatever it is, whether I'm fixing fence on Sundays here at the place or, you know, riding horses during the week or whatever it is. So I don't have time to be dorking around looking at the countryside. <laughs> and people come here and say, oh, you have such a nice place. It's such a beautiful view because we do live on a little bit of a hill. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no view as far as I'm concerned because all you're looking at is soybeans and cornfields. <laughs> you know, like I say, it is, it is a nice place and I enjoy it because I make a comfortable living and I don't have to start a pickup to go to work. Yeah, so that's true. It works out good. Well, so, so yeah. Kip, what do you do for fun? You said you kind of like working cows and roping and stuff. Do you rope competitively or work cows? competitively or what's what's a good day riding for Kip when well, you're not I, training? I I go ride to have fun quite honestly. Somebody asked us here a couple of months ago what Missy and I do for fun when we're not riding and we said well we go ride. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I do participate in some ranch roping contests around the country. Yeah, quite a bit more so when we lived in Montana than here but every fall there's a ranch roping contest in San Inez, California called the Buck Branham and Vaquero Pro-Am and I've participated in that every year. It's a very high they sought after ranch roping competition. Okay. So that's like going to see all my friends and family when I go to that every fall because I know most of the guys that participate in that deal from all over the West primarily, but there's certainly some folks that come from the Midwest and even from Georgia. So even from as far away as the, the East. So that's a lot of fun. But most of the time I either go to Montana and spend time on friends' ranches up there or I go to the Panhandle in Nebraska twice a year and then down to central Kansas once a year and brand calves in the spring and then do ranch work and fault. Okay. So that's pretty much how I keep my sanity, quite honestly. <laughs> and my, my wife lets me do it because she knows that's what happens. Now, Missy is in Europe right now. Is that correct? Uh, riding dressage? She is. Yeah. She's in the UK, quite honestly, all summer. Okay. We put her on a plane with two horses on the 15th of May in Chicago, and she's been there ever since. She did come home for six days over the 4th of July. We had a private clinic here at home together, but she's been in the UK all summer very successful deal for her. She wanted to get into a CDI show on an international scale and she wanted to be able to ride and train with her trainer that she got acquainted with in Florida for the last couple of years all summer and, and that's all been successful. So okay. she had a real good show seat and that kind of thing. She's tentatively coming home the 10th of October. She got invited to go to a developing clinic in Gladstone, New Jersey prior to coming home here. So she'll actually land in New York with the horses and then go over to New Jersey and participate in the developing clinic and then she'll be home here probably the 25th of October. Okay. Well, that's that's coming up though. That's exciting. Yeah, it won't be soon enough for me, but that's okay. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> now, do you ever find but, yourself grooming or anything for her at dressage shows? You know, I I had to laugh at myself when you sent me your outline and I saw that question. <laughs> no, quite frankly, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not qualified to do that as well as my wife has standards of. I've been to several shows with her and go and watch her and support her as often as I can and that kind of thing. But grooming, anything like that, she pretty much takes care of that herself during the summertime. Oftentimes, I have a working student that's with her or something like that. But I. I am not a dressage groom by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> They're pretty particular. Boy, that's a way to get a horse shined up yeah, looking real and, good. and rightly so, considering sure. what they're doing. That's understandable. No, I'd be more of the guy that carries around the wet rag and the and the water bottle and, and the wet towel or whatever for the shiner boots at the last minute before she goes in the ring. <laughs> sure. Like that. that would more my speed. <laughs> <laughs> Always so. a place for that, too, though. There you go. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so then, yeah, with my questions, too, do you ever ride dressage? Because you're a very skilled horseman. Do you ever think, I'm going to put my black boots on and get in that arena? Oh, no. No, I wouldn't say that at all. I'd like to think that this style of horsemanship is, is without a doubt the most akin to dressage as you can get. It just so happens that I wear cowboy boots and a cowboy hat instead of black tall boots and a, and a helmet. Sure. You know? There's a lot of times where I might get on a horse and missies because she's having difficulty with it or something like that. Or maybe a cult that I started that people definitely have aspirations to make a dressage horse and they've given it to Missy to ride after I'm done starting it or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I you know, oftentimes get in a, a dressage saddle, you know, and do quote unquote dressage moves, but I'm pretty much doing that on the horses that I ride anyway. Mm-hmm. A 60 day colt that I ride, pretty confident I could successfully do a training level test on pretty easy. You I know. think that's extremely impressive. So training level's all not all that difficult, so. Well, you know, you're talking you're talking to a girl who's not ever done a beginner <laughs> level one, so I'm I'm impressed. I think that's great. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I had sure. said my horses don't need to come to Kip, but maybe they both do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, Kip, do you have any like fun stories to share? Any horses that you're like, oh my gosh, this thing really? And then it was like stupendous or silly things or anything to share as we wrap up? Well, it would be a laundry list of things. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of stories, I suppose. But, uh, we could have a whole new show just on stories, right? Yeah, say, that might be a whole other affair. <laughs> Over the years, there's definitely been some exceptional horses. Since I've been here in Iowa, I've rode three for, for genuine outside clients that I would definitely be interested in purchasing if those people were ever interested in selling them. And the reason being is that they were very athletic, really kind horses and easy to ride, even right from the beginning, starting them as colts. And I've actually rode the one horse two additional times since I started it under saddle for the gal that owns it. And she's pretty determined she's going to keep it, I think, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) There's quite a few things. I have a a dear client and it's actually one of my wife's sponsors that that has allowed us to have several horses in training for a, a very extensive amount of time. She bought two quarter horse mares and sent them to me with the intention of me riding them as long as I thought I needed to ride them. I got both of them straight up in the bridle and did an awful lot of clinics, conducting clinics and riding in clinics with Buck Branham and and doing ranch work and roping cattle and yearlings, branded calves on them and all kinds of stuff. And those are some pretty special horses to me. I still have one of them. There's been an awful lot of things like that, you know, just memorable moments. I mean, I, I could go on for hours with different things like that. And as far as comical stories, 
you know, that, that might not be the best choice for <laughs> public. But there was a time, you know, we talked about me doing clinics and that kind of thing. About six years ago, I did a clinic in a little town called Caledonia, Minnesota. It was a clinic that Buck Branneman did the clinics in years ago when I actually worked for him. And it was pretty surreal to go back to that county fairgrounds and conduct a clinic there <laughs> when the last time I was there, I was working for the guy that was conducting the clinic. Yeah. So that was pretty wild. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, there's been a lot of different things like that. Really, I don't know anything particular stands out. Okay, so, well, and that's yeah. fine. I Like I said, I could probably <laughs> chat with you for hours and hours and we could keep this going. Exactly. Then yeah. I just have maybe so, a couple questions to wrap real quick. Do you have a favorite breed that you just love working with? Like just almost every time, this is this is my breed. Just because of what I like to do with horses and whatnot, quite frankly, the quarter horse fits my deal the best. Mm-hmm. Although I definitely like a pinch of thoroughbred in them okay. because I like the salmon. As far as the warm blood deal goes, because quite honestly, that's what I ride the most of, you know, Hanoverians or Holsteiners are without a doubt my pick. Although I've rode some some very talented Tricaners and Oldenburgs as well. Okay. A lot of people have a negative connotation about the Dutch warm blood, but I haven't had any trouble with them. I don't know enough about but, that breed to know any of that. What what would be the negative thought on that? Well, they say the Dutch warm blood horses are really quite a bit more sensitive and volatile even than Holsteiners would be, but I haven't found it to be that way. And I think the reason that people think that is just because of the way they handle them, okay. you know, which would follow with any breed, quite frankly. Sure. Um, and then I think I'm going to make this a stock question for all of the people I talk with. What type of fly spray do you use? What works? Fly spray? Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I haven't found one that works yet. <laughs> my brain. Uh, Me too. That's you know, why I'm I, trying to find out. That is, without a doubt, an advertising gimmick. Because <laughs> in I say in this country, as soon as a horse starts sweating, all that stuff runs off anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, that and I hate to say it because it's probably the most common and most overpriced stuff there is, but that pyrethra, mm-hmm. that seems to work the best. Although there's a lot of people that I've come across that have been allergic to that particular fry spray. So it's hard to use that on their horses because although it doesn't work, it stays on the horses. <laughs> and most people get it on their hands or smell it or whatever, and then they have an allergic reaction to it. So, okay. But quite honestly, none of them work. Yeah. I don't care what you use. Right. Doesn't make any difference. Okay. Well, I was hoping <laughs> you had some secret for me or something. All right. <laughs> no. Sure don't. They sure don't. Ride fast enough that the flies can't catch you. There you go. That you is know. a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my goodness, Kip. Well, we've we've about met our time limit, and I have just enjoyed this so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Emma. And we'll look forward to hearing it or meeting you some down along the line. And hopefully, you'll get to come to a clinic someday. I would love that. Yeah. The more I talk to you, the more I'm like, yep, I need to be there. So I'll have to find out when your <laughs> Iowa schedule is and and get my big old bay over there. So. That would be great. There you go. (laughs) Okay, Okay. Kip. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Not a problem. Anytime. I'd like to sincerely thank Kip Fladlin for spending time with me today. If you'd like to learn more about Kip and Misty and what they offer at La Riata, you can go to lariataranch.com. Kip offers clinics all over the nation and would love to see you there. Thanks, Kip. Thank you for listening to the Horse Cure Podcast, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. You can find more information at thehorsecure.com and by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.